All right, well, this is our fifth week meeting together in this strange way. Um, so here we are. Um, I want to start with one artist humorous but uh, tragic rendition of The Last Supper. The way it might have been if it had to happen this last Thursday, um, we could call this title this With Jesus in the Upper Zoom. Um, apologies for that. Anyway, um, uh, so I suppose this was back in the days where you can only invite seven people to your, to, your, uh, to your Zoom group. But, you know, the seven disciples doesn't quite work, doesn't have the, quite ring, the same ring as the 12. But even when we have to meet like this, or whatever it might be like, today is still a great day. This is Easter Sunday. And so you're all sitting at home in your Easter bonnets and your shoes freshly shine and your food will be special and, and it'll be great to be together. Maybe you'll do an egg hunt. So, okay, so you're not all dressed up. You're more like this. You're reenacting your Christmas card. And you're meeting, you're, you know, you're matching jammies. Uh, but here's how you do that on Easter. You got to have your poster. So we put that in there. Um, just so you know, this really is a time when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. I want to start with a question. And it's this. Can you actually believe in Jesus without seeing him? After Jesus rose, he told Doubting Thomas that people that could do that, that is, believe without seeing, would be given a special blessing. Uh, but some people are like Thomas. So, I mean, they have a hard time believing things just because somebody told them. They have to see it with their own eyes or feel it with their own hands. Uh, still, a vast majority of Christians throughout the centuries have never seen Jesus, and yet they believe in him with all their hearts. Still, the vast majority of us are like that. So you're probably one of those. But there are days and there are even seasons of life, seasons of hard times and challenges you weren't prepared for, times like the one we're in. Uh, such days have a way of making you stand back and ask, you know, what do I really believe? Um, what am I really counting on? Am I building my foundation on something, on a foundation that can't be shaken? And a great answer to that question, the great answer, is wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus. Did it really happen? Do we really believe it? Perhaps you've wondered what, what can give us stability during these times. Well, people have not gathered in festive attire on a spring Sunday every year to say the stock isn't. Uh, this week it did pretty well, but it's gone down quite a ways. They don't get together and say Major League Baseball attendance has risen. And this year, full attendance all across the league is zero. Um, the hope that has held human beings together throughout difficult times throughout the centuries, during times of poverty, times of distress, times of disease, times of pain, times of disappointment, times of persecution, times of death, is this, Christ is risen. People all over the world today are responding back with one additional word, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And so, you kids, get your posters out because we're going to talk about this. People all over this world are in their homes. A good part of this Christian world is sequestered in their houses. They've got stay-at-home orders of one kind or another. But they're saying something like this. He is risen indeed. And this is what I want to talk about today. That little word, why do we say he is risen indeed? Now, maybe you've heard someone say that the resurrection of Jesus was not a miracle. 
Um, that maybe uh, Jesus didn't even actually die on the cross. A woman wrote to J. Vernon McGee, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And McGee replied, dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for hours, run a spear through his heart, put him in an airless tomb for three days, and then see what he says. Well, others admit that Jesus actually did die, but that the resurrection is something that didn't literally happen. It was more of a metaphor. So a metaphor. What's a metaphor? It's when you say that your mom is a real teddy bear. Now, you don't actually mean real like she's an actual stuffed animal, but that she's soft and she's cuddly and uh, she's uh, available and she's uh, friendly. And if you mistreat her, she won't say too much. No. <laughs> And hopefully she's not quite this hairy. <laughs> or then maybe sometimes you would say that your boyfriend is a walking encyclopedia. And uh, that you don't really literally mean that he's a, you know, a book with boots. I don't think that's it. A metaphor is saying something is like something else and comparing it in that way. Well, anyway, some people say that the resurrection arose as a metaphor for hope. The idea being that after Jesus died, his disciples found themselves still thinking about him and his teachings a lot. They were still moved by their time with him. And it was kind of like he was still alive in their memories. And then over time, the idea of resurrection evolved as an inspiring symbol. But it didn't really happen. There was still a, a body in the tomb. It was just a metaphor for better times, like springtime with the cherry blossoms and, you know, Major League Baseball and... Um, or it was like uh, chocolate bunny rabbits squeezing out nice little eggs that can hatch out into new life. So you lost your job or lost your grandma. Be optimistic because the great metaphor will be with you, plus the candy. And, of course, they ought to admit that something pretty spectacular had to have happened 2,000 years ago to galvanize a frightened little group of ordinary people. It's improbable that they were transformed with the idea that Jesus just rose metaphorically. Would a metaphor be enough to inspire these early Christians to form the kind of community that had never been seen in the history of the world, where you could embrace Jew and Gentile in the same group, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, all in the same group, breaking down every ethnic and cultural barrier, first time it ever happened. Or I hardly think that they sacrificed land and families and houses and possessions and reputations and positions and vocations for a metaphor. They didn't lay down their lives by the thousands believing that they would be resurrected metaphorically. They did it because they believed that Jesus was literally risen. He is risen indeed. Do I have this upside down? Got it. All right. Now... So let's say it's not a metaphor. In fact, let's kind of build on that idea. It's not a metaphor. It's a meta-fact. It's a mega-fact. In fact, I put it on the board like this. A meta-fact is a fact so big and basic that it explains everything else, and without which everything else is trivial and pointless. Actually, every essential point of the gospel is a meta-fact. Well, the resurrection is one of those. Um, now, true, it was a surprise and a shock to these people. It's not what any of them expected. It wasn't ordinary. This is not what they saw. It ran cross-grained all their experiences where they, like we, bury corpses and rely on them to stay buried. 
I mean, I don't, no, I do. I was in the uh, cemetery recently when my father was buried. And uh, when I was walking around the tombstones, I didn't really want any surprises. We just sort of expect people to stay dead. Um, and yet generation after generation of us has kept saying he has risen indeed. It actually happened. It's the exclamation mark that autocorrects every question mark. Now, the first generation of Christians understood about death even more than we do, better than we do, because they handled their own dead. They embalmed their loved ones. They laid them carefully in cold ground or crypt. People who died stayed dead in those days. Everybody knew that, just like we do. So this Jesus that they had followed died a real death, a death very public, very brutal. He died at the hands of soldiers who knew how to kill. Uh, we talk about cruel and unusual punishment. Well, they had cruel and usual punishment. They had efficiently crucified Romans' enemies by, by the thousands. Now, a few of Christ's followers, mostly women, watched the whole heartbreaking event. And he might have stayed dead like everybody else, except he wasn't everybody else. He was a man, yes, but he was more. And that's why three days after being scourged and mocked and nailed and speared and buried, his tomb was empty. So here's how... Paul put it in Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You might think that at first um, the Lord's body had just been moved. If you had been there, a lot of them thought the same way. But then the strangest thing happened. The same Jesus who died, wounds still there in his hands and in his feet, wounds in his side, he began to appear to people. To Mary Magdalene in the garden, and then to his disciples, all of them, more than once. And to a man who honestly doubted, this man called Thomas. Jesus challenged him to touch the wounds of crucifixion. These people saw and handled the risen Jesus, often in groups, repeatedly, over a period of 40 days. Not some ghost, but actually bodily. They even offered him food to eat when he was hungry, and he ate, it says, broiled fish. If I had to have just one meal, I don't know if I would choose fish, but that's what, that's what they gave him. Now, within two decades of Jesus' death, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, quote, most of whom are still living. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, it really happened. Go ask them. Look. Now, why bother to add a detail like that or use words like that unless you're sure the eyewitnesses are going to back you up? It's not a kind of detail that you write if you're just putting across a myth or if you're inventing a symbol. You don't, you don't need evidence for a myth. The Bible is an entirely different kind of book. It is just plain old history. It's plain old facts. It's complete with proofs. And that's why we say, indeed, now, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to two nameless disciples, followers of his on the road to Emmaus, not the 12. And they were so impressed with Jesus that they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And then they ran to the disciples and they all began saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And this is where we get the word. This is it. The word indeed in the church's Easter greeting comes from this very verse. Indeed. It's the Greek word ontos. We had ontos. We had this last week where uh, Nate was talking to us about how 
how Jesus said he is freed indeed. And what does it mean? It means something that really is. It's the word is with the, the equivalent of our English L-Y at the end, isly, beingly, uh, truly, really, actually. It really is not a vague hope. It's not a metaphor. It's not a make-believe. It's not a lollipop that we give to a child to comfort him when he loses a pet. It's not a placebo we give to a, a terminal patient who needs some small hope, however worthless. It's not an empty slogan that we, we give to some man who has lost his job. Oh, I'm sure you're going to find something better, my good chap. You don't know that. This is not some well-meaning metaphor. It's reality. In fact, every good thing and every story with a happy ending that has ever been told, fact or fiction, is a metaphor for it. Or you could say the resurrection is the myth that's so important, it has to have actually happened. There's just one explanation that accounts for this overnight transformation of an impoverished, confused, frightened, scattered little band of disciples, turning them into a courageous, confident community that turns the world upside down. And, and that thing is this, that explanation is this. They actually believed all this because they actually saw him. That's why I made my little poster like this, where I turned the E's into I's, because it's all related to eyewitnesses, things that were actually seen. It's not how they felt. They saw him. They saw their teacher and their master. They knew who he was. And yet they saw him die, they saw him embalmed, they saw him laid in a borrowed tomb, and then they saw him do exactly what he said he was going to do, which was to rise from the dead on the third day. And so the Lord has risen, he has risen indeed. And he proved by this that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. It really happened, they insisted, because they saw him. And that is why we too say, indeed. We don't say indeed because of how we feel about it. We used to have this song that we sang. I don't know if you did in church. Uh, it was called, the name of the song was He Lives, but at the end of it says, and uh, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. That is not the right reason. I mean, it's wonderful if you feel like he lives in your heart and all that, but feelings come and go. No, you believe because they saw him and they testified to it and they died for it. And they didn't die for a lie. So we believe because it's true. And because it's true, we say indeed, they saw him. I want to take a few minutes and explain part of what indeed means for you and me on this unique Easter 2020 edition. Ah, wow, on this Sunday when people of this nation need to see Jesus more than ever, they're forced not even to see each other. <laughs> For the first time in the history of the American experience, for 400 years, ever since Plymouth Rock, 1620, this is 400 years, this is the very first time that Christians have not been allowed to meet together in this grand land. Not even to see each other. On an Easter Sunday of all times, a Sunday when a lot of people, I mean, they don't even go to church the rest of the year, and they go on that one Sunday, and here we are, we can't even meet. But what about seeing Jesus? If we can't see each other, can a virus or a governor really keep us from seeing him? Well, when it comes to us seeing Jesus, that seems rather impossible. Uh, it would either have to be 
way back then when Jesus was walking on earth, but long before we were born, so how would that happen? Or it would have to somehow happen to happen, it would have to happen now, after we have made our earthly appearance, but Jesus is, has been gone, sent it long, long ago. A two millennium gap is, seems insurmountable, at least until you ask two other questions, but just might have yes answers if Easter is true. And these are two great questions for us on this special Easter. Were you there and is he here? Were you there and is he here? Now let's start with, were you there? You know, it's hard to imagine that you could be there because obviously so much time has ticked off the cosmic clock since then. Um, happened so long ago and yet we and probably in the billions of others across the globe, have got these ancient things on our minds today. People in Liberia and Lithuania and uh, pick some more else, Liechtenstein and Leavenworth and L Street, where you live. It's not just that they're thinking about something that's old and that's why it's so important, why we gather, why we think this is wonderful. You can march around the world for for a whole decade and not find one group of people gathering together with choirs and festive decorations and passionate processions because of the amazing sack of Troy in 1184 BC uh, or the death of Alexander the Great. I mean, that is coming up June 10th, mark it on your calendar, but it's hard to get a lot of people to celebrate Alexander the Great who was only five feet seven. Or the birth of Charlemagne, I would guess you missed that, April 2nd, I know I did. Particularly in America, you won't generate a whole lot of excitement about anything historical. Today's kids barely remember that World War I happened before World War II, and they're not sure who fought in those wars, and they don't care. I mean, not you kids, but too many others. But if I could see you right now, I would see in your eyes that you do care about what we commemorate today, and I want you to know that not only are you really weird, I know why you care. And it's because you were there in some crazy, amazing way in the mind of God where it really matters, you were there. You were there when they fixed Jesus to a cross with those hard, efficient nails. You were there when they buried him in that dark, awful tomb. You were there when he rose from death to life in white hot glory, you were there. And if you were there, you have learned to tremble with the memory. Maybe not always, but sometimes. Tremble, I mean by that, shock and awe. I mean, you see it and you could barely believe it, but you believe it even against believing or against your unbelief. Shock and awe in the presence of something glorious with great pangs of joy. Now, it only happens sometimes. Sometimes we're just duller than donut holes. But, you know, as the folk spiritual, the plantation spiritual puts it, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is yes, I was there. Uh, were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when he rose up from the grave? And then it goes into that kind of a wail. Let me sing a little bit of it. Anyone that's here, you can kind of join me. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord. Oh, sometimes 
I wish it were all the time, but sometimes it causes me to tremble. Answer me, tremble, tremble. Answer me, tremble, tremble. And then I want to change the words at the end. Not, were you there, but I was there. I was there when they crucified my Lord. It's the amazing fact of it. When Jesus died, it was your death. When the Father saw him die, he saw you and me hanging there, the sinners who deserved it. And so we were dying on that cross as he bore our sins, and it's why we will never be punished for our sins, because we already were. That's just the simple fact of the gospel. 33 years ago this week, I visited the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It was a moving experience. I remember tiptoeing between the exhibits that, that showed the, well, told the story and showed relics of the, the Nazi death camps. And I paused at length before a wall-sized aerial photograph of the camp at Dachau. It's where thousands of Jews breathed their last. Was the photo taken from a, a on high-altitude Allied reconnaissance plane during World War II, I could see a long train emptying a fresh batch of prisoners who mostly had no idea what they were in for. I could see the guard towers that would guarantee no one was going to escape. I caught my breath as I saw the crematorium the, um, stacks, their ashy smoke swirling up toward the, toward the plane. And I thought I was alone, and I kept saying over and over, this is amazing. Uh, I can't believe it, this snapshot of misery. Of, of a time that was so awful. And then I felt a presence next to me, uh, and an old voice was saying, I was there. And I turned in, and I saw an old woman, all of five feet tall, in a tattered blue coat. And I saw in her eyes, and I heard in her voice a kind of remembrance that a, a mere photograph, even a striking one, could never produce. And I couldn't say a word. But I thought, why is she here? Because she was there. And that's why we are here, together on an Easter Sunday, just as we are, because viva stare, you know, as though we were, as though we were there, but in the mind of God, we were there. Now, not like the first eyewitnesses whose testimony makes all of this such a rock-hard certainty, but we were there because God saw us there. Now, it's vital that we don't forget the thrill of this great memory. Years ago, I wrote a piece called Getting My Tremble Back. The shock and the awe, the joy and the thrill of it. And so, this is what I wrote. I have a bad memory, especially for names. This isn't so good for a father of eight kids, most of whose names begin with an S or a J. Now I've got uh, spouses and 15 grandkids and kids in Liberia, and uh, it's almost hopeless. Well, they're easy to mix up when the family is functioning at only slightly, uh, slightly under Mach 1 and the dad's brain is um, still hooked up to a horse and buggy. I actually started paying one of my daughters a dollar every time I called her by her sister's name. She was sure she'd be a millionaire in a month. What she failed to figure on was that now I couldn't afford to have a bad memory. The prospect of poverty improved my brain power and she collected only a couple of times before I was in the groove. A bad memory is not good for a pastor either. Pastors ought to remember people's names, like my phenomenal dad, who I'd almost swear could remember names he hadn't actually heard yet. He had a memory like a steel trap, not I. 
Technically, it's not the names I forget. I just can't match them with any faces. I've got dozens of Henrys and Lou's and Betty's wandering around in my head without any faces. Noseless, eyeless, just blank. Reminds me of an old horror movie with what, what's his name in it, you know. And I don't imply I'm so good with faces either. I mean, I can, I can see an old acquaintance, by which I mean anyone I met more than 20 minutes ago, and all will be quiet in my head. Their face just does not ring a bell, not even a jingle. Doesn't leave anywhere to go when I get senile. And so, as I say, this memory problem is no asset. At least, not usually. There's just one time when I'm delighted to be a numbskull, when I get to read a blockbuster Alistair MacLean adventure book for the second or third time with almost no memory how it turns out. Uh, <laughs> things like the Guns of Navarone or uh, Ice Station Zebra. You probably have seen the movies, but anyway, I read the books. And all the way through, I can gloat that the ending is so good that the average reader can enjoy the book only once. But because I'm well below average, I can feast on a great book over and over as if it were the first time. A very close friend of mine, I think his name is Dave, has a good memory and laments that the day will come when he'll finish all the McLean volumes. So he rations his reading to one volume a year, putting off the inevitable grief that his friend Bruce will never experience. Bruce, I think, will never experience. I often can't remember the thing I just read. I often can't remember the thing I just read. I have a memory like a steel sieve. Now let me go on before I forget why I started this confession. The only time I can relate to my friend Dave's lament is in regard to the greatest story ever told, the comings and goings of Jesus. I know this story so thoroughly that all the surprises are gone. I've just heard it and read it and even taught it so many times for so long that I'm mouthing the words right at the points where I should be shocked, speechless, you know, trembling. Has it happened to you? I, I forget to gasp when I read that Jesus, paragon of purity, actually touched an untouchable leper. I don't do a double take as I used to when I read that Jesus turned to his own mother Mary and asked, who is my mother? I don't blink twice when I come across the story where Jesus had Peter catch a fish to pay the temple tax. The fish turned out to have a coin in its mouth, exact change. I don't laugh out loud triumphantly as I once did when Jesus shuts down his arrogant and powerful critics and then sits back and watches a humble widow put her whole little fortune in the offering and thereby earn his highest praise. I already know all the moves. I don't flinch anymore. The surprise I miss the most is the resurrection. To hear of the great reversal when death was swallowed up in victory and not lose my breath, at least for a moment, is to know myself jaded, doctrinally handicapped, because with some of the awe missing, some of the joys left with it, maybe even some of the truth. I think this is where my kids have saved me. It may be one of God's great reasons for having kids grow up in homes with adults in them, an extremely awkward arrangement in many other regards, so that parents can rediscover the joyful jolt of God's surprise endings. It's 1981, and my son James is four. You know, when you're four, 40 pounds and 40 inches. I've been a Christ follower for over 30 years by then, but James doesn't know him yet. He's my third kid to walk through the Bible storybook, and I'm sort of ho-humming through it, David kills Goliath for the third time with the first shot. Again, never misses, except James's eyes are like saucers. A few nights later, it's Elisha and the floating accent. I yawn and James claps. I begin perking up. We get to Daniel. Will the prophet get eaten this time by the big yellow kitties? I already know. I already know what's coming next, but I'm warming up to it again when I see the kick that James is getting out of hearing it all the first time. 
And then we get to the New Testament, Jesus. And finally, we come to the cross and the thorny crown, the mocking and spitting, the tears and betrayals, three trials, three denials. And James is grieved. It shouldn't end like this. The one he started to love so sweetly is being treated so bitterly. A, a kind of steely rage settles over James' brown eyes, a cold, innocent sense that evil men should never do such things to a friend of children. And I think we miss some nights reading as if it were time for Jesus to lie stony still in the grave of James' wounded, James's wounded heart. James cradled his loss. He knew about pets who don't come back, even if you hope and pray and hope some more. He assumed his loss was final. The night comes when we resume the story. We pick up where we left off. The centurion saying, truly this was God's son. There's the word indeed again. And then I go on with the story of the resurrection. And I can see little James is not quite grasping what the empty tomb means. So I say it in plain language. James, do you get it? Jesus came alive again. And Jesus, here's Jesus alive and here's James launching himself out of the covers in a burst of amazement. He puts a lock on my neck that would make a chiropractor proud. His heart comes up against my heart, his bony little body pressing into mine as the joy overwhelms him. You'd think he'd just learned that ice cream has been declared a vegetable or that bedtime would be extended to midnight indefinitely. Actually, he discovered far more, and I think he knew it. He just found out that Jesus, quite dead, is alive right now. And so did I. Juvenile jubilation reignited a daddy's faded faith. His happy, furious hug repacked the thrill into my theology, trembling. And I relearned that the failure at the Garden of Eden doesn't have to be terminal. Yeah, that when, Jesus, when God says something's going to happen, even if it seems impossible, it happens exactly as he said every time. Wow. That life can never get so flawed that God can't astound us with an ending we love. Oh, wow, and that no accusation can defeat us, no guilt undo us, no condemnation erase us. Hallelujah. And that there's a champion who died once and came back never to die again, will never be left alone, never be helpless, never be friendless, pass the pom-poms and pass the popcorn. And with a young son fastened joyfully around my neck, I learned that a man with a bad memory has an ever-living Savior who will never forget his name. Not ever. Amen. Now back to our main point, that spiritually we were there when it happened. And here's what's most important about that, that God doesn't forget we were there. What God saw when Jesus died and was buried and rose again, he saw us there. And so now we say we were crucified with Christ. We were buried with him in the likeness of his death, and we were made alive together with him, exactly what we reenact whenever we are baptized. God saw us there. And that's more important to us than whether we saw him. Did God see us? Were we there? And yes, God saw us there, and he says so. Leave us there. The other question is, is he here? And that is fundamentally a question of his being alive. Uh, if he didn't rise, then obviously he's not here. He's gone. We're alone. If death destroyed him, then we should close our Bibles and abandon this miserable Easter charade, even with the painted eggs and the you know, sugar bunnies and the fancy bonnets and the, the fake plastic grass. This is not a good day, however, in our history to find out that we're alone, that we don't have Jesus with us. These days are hard. 
This is no joke. It's not like you can just, you know, look at your dog and say, I took three months to teach you how to shake hands, and now we've got to do the elbows. Well, that's funny, but this is not funny. We have some serious issues to deal with. As of today, we have 20,000 Americans who have died of this virus. 17 million Americans have applied for unemployment. And if you're like me, you appreciate what everybody is doing for us, the task force and all the medical people that are working, they're heroes, really, that are working on all levels, military helpers, developers of medicines and vaccines, scientists that are using everything they know to help us get through this. It's impressive. But this is not where our confidence lies. In a time of so many unknowns, we need the great known. And that is that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And he is here. <laughs> Long before he ascended, he promised that where two or three are gathered in his name, he said, I will be right there in their midst. Here's a nice couple having devotions together. Social distancing, just perfect. But there's Jesus. He can get up as close to you as you could ever need or want. Now, it is true we won't see Jesus physically until he returns. But every day the Lord is with us because he is risen. He is risen indeed. We have no spiritual life without him. We would just be on our own and alone. But he experienced a kind of isolation on that cross and an abandonment from his father so that we will never be isolated from him. He is our life. Just as Paul confessed, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You're not alone. You cannot be alone. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. And then you, you love him back. How did Peter put it? He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And he goes on to say, though you do not see him, you believe in him. There's the answer to our first question. Can you actually believe in Jesus without seeing him? Yes. And in fact, far more. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the trembling. That's the reality and joy of an unending life. And that means if the resurrection is true and if Jesus lives in you, your future is not at risk. I mean, we could all stand to remind ourselves of that these days. No matter what happens, your future is not something that you need to fear. One of my favorite characters in history is Winston Churchill. One of the things I love about him was his pugnacity. One of Churchill's mottos was, in war, resolution. In defeat, defiance. He once gave a commencement address during the war. Um, the whole text of the address was this, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. With that, he sat down. He had a running battle with a woman by the name of Lady Astor. His, his, she was named Nancy, his Nancy. A very stubborn opponent, the first member, a female member of parliament. And no matter what she said, he always had a comeback. One time she said, Mr. Churchill, if I were your husband, I'd put poison in your coffee. His response was, Lady Astor, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. He was a tough old cookie. But, uh, but so was she. When she said, Winston, you are a drunk. And Churchill's answer was, and you, madam, are ugly. Actually, she wasn't ugly. Or I don't think he would have said that. But he says, and you, madam, are ugly, but I shall be sober in the morning. When he was an old man, 
of 19, he died. Ten years before, he had planned his funeral at St. Paul's Cathedral, detailing every part of the service. He labeled his plan Operation Hope Not, meaning he hoped it would never be needed. But the man who repelled Hitler could not repel death. At the end of the service, after every word had been spoken, after the archbishop's benediction had been pronounced, before the people could follow the coffin being carried out in grand recession, Churchill had arranged for a bugler to perch high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral to play taps, the universal signal that the day is done, the night is, has come, the darkness looms, it's over. And the crowd was spellbound by the brass notes that floated down like silk from the, through the hushed air. And everybody in that vast audience, representatives from 120 nations, and including the young Queen Elizabeth, thought again about the storied life of their Churchill, what they, the one they called the British Bulldog. They had to respect the fact that now it was indeed over. After a short pause, before the crowd could disperse, there was one more staccato solo that Churchill had requested something that no one could have expected in this solemn uh, occasion at this wonderful funeral. Another bugler on the far side of the dome began to play Reveille. Time to get up, song of the new day, sound of a bright morning, reminder that a battle awaits. Now why on earth did Churchill want that? Well, because one day long ago, the greatest man who ever lived said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, Churchill was a remarkable guy, but Churchill never said, I am the resurrection and the life. Only Jesus said that. Churchill was simply declaring with rousing bugle notes, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And there is a great getting up morning still coming because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. First Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of God's trumpet, God's bugle. And there's more here. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, hey, will your future have problems? Of course your future will have problems. Your today has problems. Is there a good chance you'll die eventually? There's a very good chance you will die eventually. You've been at a funeral where you've gathered under a canopy of black umbrellas in the northwest rain to say your farewells. Maybe you were there and you wondered if you would be next. Here we are on this Easter Sunday, and one year ago on Easter Sunday, one of our men, by the husband of one of our dear women, passed away Easter Sunday. Could happen. We don't like to think about it. We don't even like to talk about it very often because it disturbs us. Does your death make Jesus nervous? Not at all. Why not? Because he already died for you. He has already taken on the worst that death can do, and he has risen in victory, and he has risen indeed. It really happened. And in the plan of God, some of you tuned in to this live stream to hear this, that the resurrection means that the best is yet to come. Wherever you might travel, however old you are, you, are, you have not seen the best yet. If you are a resurrection person, the best 
is yet to come. And so we end with the great encouragement from, one, from the one who is the, the way, the truth, and the life. Here's something that Jesus said to his friend Mar Martha. She was grieved with the loss of her brother, Lazarus, and just before Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, he made a statement and he asked her a question. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, by coming to me, will you come to him? By following me, will you follow him? By trusting me, will you trust in him? By putting themselves in my hands, will you put yourself in his hands? Though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Death is ultimately powerless over him. And then Jesus ends with a question. Do you believe this? Martha, I haven't even raised your brother yet, but do you presently, not will you believe this after I do it, but do you believe this because I said so? Do you believe this? Do I believe this? If you do, then I want you to say with me, indeed. Ready? Do you believe this? Then I want you to say it. Say it loud. Indeed. Say it soft. Indeed. In fact, I want you to say it in other languages. He has risen. Let's say it in Greek. Is he risen? He is risen. And we're going to pronounce it like this. Antos. Are you ready? He is risen. Antos. Let's do it in French. Réalement. Are you ready? Is he risen? He is risen. Réalement. All right. Let's do it in German. Is he risen? He is risen. Let's get the... Okay, there we go. Varhaftig. Can you say it? Varhaftig. Let's do that again. Is he risen? He is risen. Varhaftig. It goes after that. Alferstanden. All right, let's do it in Italian. Is he risen? He is risen. Viraminti. Ready? Viraminti. We go to Viraminti. All right, let's do it in Spanish. And let's do it to Spain. Now, I want you to think about the fact people all over the world that know Christ are are huddled together, like in Spain, you're in lockdown. And so all the Christians are doing this in their homes. And if they say, is he risen? They, and they, so they'll say it in the Spanish way. This is not the way you do it, usually in school. But verdaderamente, verdaderamente. I don't know if I got that right, but we're gonna do it. Is he risen? He is risen, verdaderamente. Let's do it in Icelandic. This is my favorite language, okay? Are you ready? And this is a great way to say this. Is he risen? So we're going to say it like that. Visulaga. Everybody practice at once. Visulaga. Has he risen? He has risen. Visulaga. And then we can't leave this out. Turkish. Here's our, our great friend in, in Turkey, Karen. She actually made us a poster. I'm going to show you in a minute. But he has risen. And here it is. Gerçetin. Gerchitin. Everybody practice Gerchitin. So is he risen? He is risen. Gerchitin. All right. And here's the poster that she sent to us. Gerchitin. Indeed in Turkish. Gerchitin. Derildi. I don't know how you pronounce that second word, but risen indeed. Wow. I want you to think about Karen for a minute. Here they are in lockdown in the country of Turkey. Uh, she just sent us a whole bunch of prayer requests. I don't want to read all these, but She's talking about how she's working in her little garden at the entrance of the building because she can't go out and meet with all the people she meets with in her ministry. She said it is clean of virus since no one else in our building has ever gone into it for 20 years. She's uh, so working at home, have ordered a stationary bicycle. Sounds like 
kind of stuff that we're going through. And she gives us some advice. Take care, wash your hands, stay home, pray, love from Turkey. And then she gives us a, a lot of prayer requests. And I'm just going to repeat a couple or three of these. One is this. In the face of fierce opposition, a Christian family in the province of Yuskat moved to a remote village without electricity or piped water. To survive, they began keeping sheep. At first, most of these died due to disease and their lack of experience, but now they have at least 200 sheep, and the father has received an award as the best shepherd in their area. They've recently been able to help establish a small Christian meeting place nearby. Pray that many in the district will visit and get to know the good shepherd who longs to give them eternal life. She talks about the refugees in Turkey. There are reportedly about 7 million refugees in Turkey. Unfortunately, there aren't enough jobs for the country's own people. So it's really hard for most of these foreigners to survive. As they're able, Turkish and Kurdish believers continue helping many with their needs. Please uphold these desperate people in your prayers. She talks about when people in a refugee camp heard of a small church nearby, a number of persons from Afghanistan, Burundi, and Iran chose to visit. Ask the Lord to call each of them to a knowledge of the truth. And there's just all kinds of more personal notes on this. But then she says this, and something I had not realized how the gospel has grown in Turkey since the time we first went there, before Karen ever, ever, ever went there 30 years ago. She says there are now at least 172 Turkish congregations in the country. Pray that their number will greatly increase in the days ahead.